You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and apologies this um, uh, this episode didn't arrive last week, but we've had some internet problems and other sorts of challenges up here in northern New South Wales. So Renew Economy video and audio productions was sort of uh, grounded by the lack of any connection. But um, here we are now. Uh, I'm joined as usual by David Leach from ITK. David, how are you? Well, Giles, it uh, sounds like I'm doing a little better than you. All it does is rain constantly here. I'm not, and it's not raining bombs like it is in uh, in Kiev, for instance. Uh, and there's not uh, 2,000 uh, homes being destroyed uh, here in Sydney, or 10,000 cars being destroyed, or 5,000 homeless people. Although there are a few out of their homes, mm. uh, we just get to talk about humble stuff like the electricity wars and things like that. Uh, I shouldn't say wars. Uh, perhaps it's uh, you know the um, transition. I think we're calling it. Maybe people could call it that. I think, I think we're calling it a transition. Although it might it might seem like a um, a, a fierce battle, and in well, it probably is within the boardrooms. Um, looking at some of the things things um, that we'll talk about later on. Look, first of all, I want to start with the interview that you did, David, with Gordon Weimer, the Chief Operating Officer of Snowy Hydro. Now, this interview was actually done 10 days ago, and apologies for not bringing it to you sooner, but we were sort of stuck by this massive internet and uh, telephone outage that we've had up here for the last week. Um, but we're back now. So, Gordon, David, just, just uh, uh, Charles, one quick correction: Chief Chief Commercial Officer. I was Chief Commercial Officer. Okay, yeah. my apologies, Gordon Weimer, Chief Commercial Officer from Snowy Hydro, and here's the discussion that he had with David. Gordon Weimer, Chief Commercial Officer of Snowy Hydro, uh, and uh, I guess you've been at Snowy for how long uh, now? That's a very embarrassing question, David. Uh, it's it's more than seventeen years. And uh, that, that, so that's a long time to be studying the electricity industry, really, and seeing it from, from, the, from the inside. And I guess it's gone through uh, a lot of change in that time without wanting to spend too long about it. But if we go back and look even 10 years ago, it would have been hard to imagine the state we are today. And as for 17 years ago, a lot of the technologies we're talking about hadn't even been invented. Yeah, well, there's, there's certainly, a, it's a different world. And I'm still here because it's fascinating. Because I get a kick out of it, and the the rate of change just keeps accelerating. And I think uh, you know people listening to your podcast will probably be all across those things. But um, the the developments that you see now, most of them were have been flagged. So most of the things that are happening have been in train for quite a while. But that doesn't mean that dealing with them is any easier. And so I guess uh, Snowy now is making about or made in. FY21, about 580 odd million EBITDA, give or take uh, a bit, you know, I'm talking of very round numbers, and about, I guess, 70 or 80% of that comes from the generation side and about 20% from the retail. And I think that that's a business that overall is comparable in size to Energy Australia in terms of EBITDA. Um, as you look at the prospects for the business in total, how are you feeling about the next uh, two or three years? Yeah, um, <clears throat> absolutely fantastic, because the, the, the things that are happening in the NEM now are the things that we 
things should have been happening in the NIM. So for example, uh, our CNR business, our commercial and industrial business, has exploded because those customers now have uh, ESG obligations. They're getting far more real about what is green electricity, so what is genuine renewables, and that just plays to our strengths. So we've, we've bought in about uh, 1,100 megawatts of wind and solar through a, through a single enormous tender, which we're, we're building on all the time. Is that all online now? Uh, no, most of it is. Um, the, the, that industry uh, has done it tough because of the disruptions they've had. They've had COVID, they've had rains, floods, droughts, you name it. So um, it's all in train, it'll all, it'll all get there. Uh, it's all close to transmission and it's... Um, and we love it because our customers are demanding more of that kind of product. So I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about the next few years because what we see is, uh, so that business is expanding very quickly. We've, we've, uh, we've doubled in three years. We're 50% up on the last year. Um, and 50% up in terms of uh, corporate and industrial uh, volumes. Yes, yeah, so both, both volume and revenue because those customers pay explicitly for green. So we, we, we pioneered a product in the market. Uh, the CNI sector used to only sell three-year deals. Mm. So we said, well, we've bought all this long-term energy. We'll sell you anything you like. We'll sell you three, five, up to 15 years. Uh, for some reason, seven and 10 are two sweet spots. So we've sold a lot of seven and 10-year product. And what they love about it is the price is fixed mm. because we know our inputs. We, we know the wind and solar price. We know the uh, LGC prices. We know what it costs to firm. So you get a known price for whatever period of time that you like. And that product is very popular. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, so traditionally, I guess, Snowy would have sold as much as anything caps to other big generators in the market that uh, mightn't have had as much uh, peaking capacity as Snowy has. I think Snowy has, uh, you know, 60% of the peaking market, more or less, by measured in megawatts. Uh, but that's, that's not as big a part of the business now as it used to be? Yeah, so I've, I've got to take you up on that part of the peaking market <laughs> because there is no peaking market. So if you're a coal-fired generator, you have firm capacity, you can sell the same product that we do. The, the difference is, for example, AGL, they cover their own load. So they tend not to sell as much to the market because they're covering internally. Uh, traditionally, we're very long, so we offer a lot of that product to the market. Um, it still is a very significant chunk. So you can find an annual report, we sell sort of 200 to $250 million a year's worth of capacity cover. Mm -hmm. And that's insurance that we sell that we then have to back. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's staying um, roughly the same. Some years are more, some years are less. Uh, I will say with the announcements of Araring and all the AGL closures, there's been a lot of interest in our capacity. Um, unsurprisingly, so our, our futures book, so, the, so since 1st of January 2020 to 1st of January 2022, uh, it's multiplied by five. Five? Five. That, that's so a pretty good number, isn't that's it? A, that's a very good number, and it, it just tells you, and, and, and we've covered it, so that's fine. So there's sufficient capacity in the market, hmm. but um, you don't want any more closures and you desperately want transmission to come in hmm. so that the market can cover itself. I suspect one way or another we'll end up talking about transmission before we finish this conversation, but I um, want to get there uh, gradually and go through the rest of it as well. Because, um, and then the retail business is in FY21 earned about $130 million of EBITDA, which is more or less what it was earning two or three years ago. And then I think Every retailer went down a bit due to regulatory changes, and the customer numbers must be up around what 1.1 million or something now. Yeah, they are just over 1.1. Um, that market um, in 
in, in every state is uh, troubled by the fact that uh, it's very hard to win customers because the regulatory return you're allowed to uh, charge your customers doesn't include any allowance for acquisition of customers. Mm. So the, the, that's actually worse for the new entrants. So people who haven't established customer base, they have an advantage, which seems a bit weird. Um, but it's tough to grow because you, you have this natural pressure not to spend too much on customer acquisition. Mm. So um, I'm not entirely sure that that's great for the industry because you want new entrants coming in. You, you particularly want uh, new ideas about products. Mm. So EVs, for example, are going to be huge. Well, I, you know, uh, I published a note this week pointing out that uh, Saul, Saul um, uh, Thingamajig, who did re, re Electrify Australia, noted that um, over half the energy consumption in a household is, is oil and diesel, gas, you know, petrochemicals, and if you converted that to electricity volume per customer for an electricity retailer could double or treble, and uh, that makes me very optimistic about the retail business. A retailer won't get all of it, but a, a significant share, and so I guess the retail industry is quite fragmented at the moment. Um, do you see that that could continue to consolidate uh, over time if that's the only way to grow your customer base? Yeah, it's... Uh, it's hard to see consolidation because <clears throat> you'd have to see one of the big guys split up. I can't see how you'd have consolidation otherwise. And I don't think they, they're intending to let the customer base go. Mm. So I think what's more likely is that you, you'll see agile new retailers pop up mm. who will offer things that people like. Mm. Uh, their difficulty is that, is that to, to, to continue growing is hard. You've got to invest capital. Yeah, so, I, I, you know, I think that's the age strategy AGL in particular has gone down uh, with um, uh, uh, trying to branch out into telcos and Origins doing something with embedded network business, you know, they're all looking for adjacencies. Uh, uh, personally, I think you could do better just with a pure green product and appealing to the mass customer out there, but that, what do I know? Uh, and I just want to ask you about IT systems because another thing that we see as a tendency is for these kind of new design of IT systems, new customer care platform type business, the sort of thing that Octopus in the UK uh, is, makes a big thing about. Uh, do you see any anything going on for you, for Snowy, in that area? Yeah, can we come back to the renewable thing about, because that's, I want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, talk. The, talk. But, the, but, but on the second point, I think the, the, uh, the skill there is timing. Mm. So if you're going too early, you're going to burn a lot of dough. If you're going too late, you're going to miss out. Mm. So I think, uh, like wind and solar, we, we didn't buy any wind and solar for 12 years and then we bought 1,000 megawatts in one go. I think with the IT system, who's your target audience? Uh, if it's 100 customers in the NEM, then you can have the best product, but you're going to lose a lot of money. Yep. So I think, I think there, the trick there is to, is to time it when the, the EVs come in, because I think there you've got a natural audience of you know, a huge amount of electricity, uh, and, and to keep it cheap. So to, to, to bring it in incrementally, yep. but get ready for the big change. Now you wanted to talk about green electricity as well. So we have a product we call True Green mm -hmm. uh, because we object to the notion of green power. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you look through how that is defined, it's defined as any generation you like plus an LGC. So you can generate uh, a megawatt hour from brown coal. Yep. You can stick an LGC on it, and you can call it 100% green. Yeah, I don't now, like that either. Okay, don't you don't like it. I don't like it. So, <laughs> so what's true green? Right. So true green uh, prevents the separation of a certificate from the generation. Hmm. 
True Green is 100% renewable energy and you get whatever certificate is attached to it. Now, does it cost customers more or less or the same? Same. So, so our, our, those CNI deals, mm. that's True Green. So you get a, a matched amount of electricity, so we can't sell that twice. Yeah. And you get the LGC and that is a True Green product. And that's popular? That's very popular. What about with households? Does that, do you have a product for them in that like that? Uh, we, so Red Energy has the um, renewable matching promise. Yeah. So, so whatever you buy from Red, we guarantee we'll match that with X megawatt hours of hydro generation. Right. And is that popular? Uh, it, it is, but the premium is not explicit. Right. So, but so it should that, be cheaper, right? I mean, uh, uh, it, it, shouldn't it? I mean, I, uh, this is the big argument. I mean, this is the Cannon Brooks argument. I don't want to get too far away from the topic too quickly. But uh, the sort of theory is that uh, a largely renewable system can be cheaper than a thermal-based system going forward. Uh, first of all, do you think that's a reasonable proposition? Yeah, there's, so there's a, that's a very hard question to answer because, the, because the, the, the real question is how renewable is it and how fast and how reliable is it? Yeah. So, the, so if, you, if you want the same reliability that you have now, you have to have a lot of backup. You've got to have a lot of hydro or you've got to have a lot of open cycle gas, and then it's not 100% green, it's 50 or whatever it is. Let's call it 90% green, I don't mind. I don't want to quibble about this. Yeah. I mean, I just want to get the basic idea that if you were going forward, let's say, in, your, in Snowy's view, can a largely green-based system be at the same price, lower or higher than a thermal-based system today? Well, so you've got to make assumptions about the price of coal. Yeah, yeah. And you've, got to, uh, you've got to... But you can, you yeah. can make... I can make those assumptions. So it, it, can, it can be cheaper, but it's got to be optimised. So okay. now that you've asked me that question, I've got to answer that properly, because otherwise it's, it's, it's meaningless. To have that system work, you've got to have an amount of transmission that is probably three to five times what we have. You've got to have an amount of storage based on your own work, which I thought was bloody marvellous. You've got to have... Uh, eight terawatt hours of cumulative storage in any one year. For, that's for 100%, so scale it back a little bit. But the storage element is huge. And this is where I think a lot of the uh, lack of detailed analysis is driving people to believe you could have a 90 or 100% green grid and you'll still get through the end of winter, which is the worst period of the year. So I think, yes, it's possible. I think the the core resources we have are probably the best in the world. You look at Western Victoria and Western New South Wales, you've got their, their, their west of the load centres, so you get solar after the sun is set in Sydney. Mm. You've know, got a benign regulatory regime, you've got a fantastic wind and solar resource, you've got a sparsely populated land area, you've, obviously you've got to keep the population happy, but compared to everywhere else in the world, you have every advantage under the sun. Sorry, no pun intended. Yep. You've just got to connect it. Yep. So now, all right. So I, I wanted to actually get onto, and in fact, I will get onto that a little bit later. Now, I know you you're more the commercial person rather than the engineering manager. I think that's very clear. But if I was just to generally ask about the big projects that get the headlines at Snowy, which is I think mainly Snowy too, could you talk talk a little bit about how generally uh, from where you sit, you think it's going at the moment, the construction progress and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. So we're. Um it's, it's, it's going well. So there's tunnel boring machines that are chewing their way through the mountain. Uh, there's a segment factory, which is, which is actually in Cooma, producing concrete line segments that get taken up and stuck into the tunnels. Uh, there's a, a huge amount of construction confined to a very small space, which is engineering-wise 
quite amazing to see how tightly controlled the space actually is. Um, so the project is on budget and um, the, the timing schedule is, uh, has been affected by COVID. I thought it might be. Um, but in terms of the critical path, so the engineering guys talk about what are the key milestones you've got to get to get to the end that is unaffected. Mm. So there's, there's all sorts of things that, are, that have been affected by COVID and also by flood, you know, the, mm. the area gets a lot of rain. Um, but the critical path has been unaffected. So let's come back to this sort of uh, question where I think Snowy's view, uh, frankly, is quite different to a lot of the other players in the market. And uh, so recently on this podcast, we had Mark Collette, uh, the CEO of uh, Energy Australia, who told me he'd spent most of January, like I did, reviewing the ISP uh, and uh, is closing your lawn and building a battery. Uh, we've had uh, uh, Origin announcing that Araring is closing and they're building a battery and a lot of batteries are being built. And in general, it seems to me that the consensus of people, uh, well, I know it's a fact, right, that, uh, that, that um, AEMO did this Delphi analysis where they asked the uh, expert stakeholders what they thought was going to happen and then they pass the answers around to them each other and then they have another vote on it six months later and they've all voted for this kind of uh, step change or more aggressive scenario. But you have some problems with it generally. Oh, we have no problems with a step change scenario, no. Our, our issue with the ISP, the, the primary and really only issue is that the order of the internet connects being built is wrong and the timing is far too late. So I'll, I'll throw some stats at you because EMO is uh, the producer of some of the best research that I've ever seen about the NEM. Their quality report, if that's all you read, it'll probably do you because most of the things are in there. So in the last Q4, the last quarter of the annual, uh, uh, EMO report, uh, they identified that the uh, proportion of time that the Victoria to New South Wales interconnect was constrained during the day is 45%. Look, there's a $40, $30 price difference that shouldn't be there over the last 12 months. Correct. It's so terrible. That, that shouldn't happen. You, you, uh, we agree. Yeah. Agree vehemently on that. So, so, the, so the thing is... Um, of course, some people think Snowy's partly to blame for that because it's not actually the physical capacity of the line. It's all the constraints around it, you know, when the West Victorian guys are actually running. I think they changed one of the constraints, didn't they, about uh, 12 months ago that actually causes some of this. But you'd know a lot more about that yeah, than I so, would. Yeah, so we're, we're absolutely not to blame. We're, <laughs> we're a... We are a victim of the fact that, uh, and this is in the EMO quarterly report again, the, the congestion around Wagga yes. is the actual reason you're not getting cheap Victorian power into New South Wales. Because that isn't supposed to happen. If the Victorian price is 40 yeah, we, and New we, South Wales 80, but hang on. So the, the reason the electrons aren't getting through is for the system stability in southwestern New South Wales, those lines are constrained by the dispatch engine. It has nothing to do with us. We, we're... We hate it because mm. we can't sell product from Tumut into Sydney. Mm. So we would sell more capacity cover to the market if those lines weren't constrained. Right. Okay, good. So let's agree that the transmission capacity between New South Wales and Victoria is a, is, is a problem. Uh, I, I, I'm more than happy to agree with that. And let's go on to what else, the ISP, uh, where it could be improved in your view. Yeah, so I think that, so to us, and we don't have access to EMOs more, but from our perspective, uh, the definition of firm capacity is hugely problematic. So for our, for our own book, to protect our position, we use 99.9%. .9%. We consider that to be firm. 
um, Emo, it looks like, uses 99%. And no, they refer well, they, to... They have the unserved energy, don't they? Uh, which is the standard definition of unserved energy. And in fact, that's been revised to 0. 0.000 something or other, no, I think. 0.002%, yes. yeah, which is 11 minutes per year. Yes. And their modelling says their own output is they get 0.0016% per year. So notionally, that's a tick. That's a, that means that the, the systems work. So our position is... That output is, the, is a function of modelling that does not adequately address the probability distributions of wind and solar. Now, and the, can, and we, the, can we just talk about that exactly? Because uh, uh, my understanding, and I could be quite wrong about this because it's a very technical discussion, uh, is that they use Plexos and use 10 years worth of data and model half hourly with the resource sets that are input. Sure. Uh, how do you? How does Snowy do its modelling? Well, so with all respect to that modelling, that is exactly what they do. But that is a deterministic run of half an hour, half hourly modelling for thirty years. So the modelling is vast. Mm -mm. We wouldn't even attempt to do that. What we do is we model the bits that we're interested in. So, for example, for, for Snowy two point our average price outputs are irrelevant. You, you wouldn't even look at them. But the percentage of the the pumping. Uh, distribution curve and the peak distribution curve, we spent a huge amount of time on. We went a little bit nuts, to be honest. Mm. So those bits work. Um, our criticism of their model is that they don't they don't appear to adequately look at the absolute tails of the distributions and they make assumptions. So one of their assumptions is that the Tasmanian wind provides resource diversity to Victoria. It doesn't. The correlation between wind in Tasmania and Victoria is 0.55. But uh, that 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 uh, may be right, but it may not be. Uh, that may be right, uh, but I guess they look at it from an M-wide basis, and I don't. Again, I, our mm. listeners will probably get bored if we end up talking too much of a technical detail. But they model, like for instance, the worst days. Uh, and the best days uh, in the NEM across the past 10 years and see how their resource portfolio would actually have met that day. You know, and they say that, for instance, uh, when there's not much wind blowing, say in Tasmania, that it's often quite a lot of sun in outback New South Wales or somewhere, and that if you had enough transmission uh, and, a bit, and a bit of uh, hydro and maybe even a bit of gas, you can, you can sort the thing out. But you, you, uh, uh, and, and they show that they meet the standard. That's what my generally, uh, the lights stay on. Yeah, but so you're, you're judging the model by the conclusion that reliability is 0.001, unserved energy is 0.016%. Our, our position is that that's a false output. Hmm. Our position is that you get there by assuming that, that the POE 99 of wind is 600 megawatts. Let, 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 we, let, we don't get to the same answers on that same metric. Let, let, let me uh, ask the question another way. Have you discussed this in detail with the AEMO people? Uh, we've had a discussion with AEMO. We need to have a follow-up discussion and, and go into more detail. And what do they say about your points? Um, well, we haven't got to that, to, to that you, detail you haven't discussion. Got, you haven't so got we, to we, that. No, so we, we need to actually share the data on what we're looking at compared to what, what they're looking at. That's good. So we could get some progress there because I think if anyone has something useful to contribute to this debate, it is Snowy who, who does do a lot of work on, on, on these sort of correlations, don't you? Uh, well, well, we do. And, the, and I think, so coming back to the, the, the transmission uh, argument, I suppose, our key point of difference with EMO is that uh, the, 
the output shows that the Marinus link between Victoria and Tasmania is preferred to the VNI West link, which connects Project Energy Connect through Melbourne and HumeLink. So it connects Adelaide, Sydney, Wagga and Melbourne. Mm. That, which in our opinion is a bad outcome because the VNI West link mm. connects to all that incredible resource in Western Victoria now, in New South Wales. A general comment from the ISP is that in fact Victoria is de-emphasised going forward. Uh, Absolutely, uh, totally and, agree with that. And northern New South Wales and Queensland uh, uh, and maybe Western New South Wales because they have uh, uh, better uh, renewable resources uh, uh, end up doing more of the work. Do, yeah. you, do you agree with that general point? Yes. So, so the, again, one of, the, one of the big problems is South Australia has an awesome solar resource. Also, the sun sets about 50 minutes later in Adelaide than it does in Sydney and about half an hour after Melbourne. That's incredibly valuable. So if, if Project Energy Connect from Adelaide through to Wagga through to Sydney and Melbourne was connected, mm. you would get that benefit from SA in the eastern states and South Australia would benefit from the wind in Western Victoria to bolster their supply. So you would have this, uh, well, synergies is the only word for it. You've got synergies between Portfolio all these, benefit. Call it portfolio benefit. Uh, where, where it is at the moment is Project Energy Connect terminates in Wagga. Mm. So when those electrons get off the bus, mm. they've got nowhere to go. That system is already constrained 45% of the time during the day. Mm. So, so that's, so that, that's, so nothing, that's something I, I guess I didn't realise. I read that in Snowy's submission. Uh, I mean, is that generally accepted? Well, that's, that's from EMO's data. So that's yes. from their quarterly report. Yes. And, and we see it every day because we, we say, right, we've got 1,800 megawatts to sell from Tumor 3. How much can we actually back yes. on that line? It's nothing like 1,800 megawatts. No, it's not. Uh, it's not. And, and you're saying that Project Energy Connect is just going to, in fact, uh, make the unused uh, capacity, the capacity utilisation of the whole system worse, in a sense, because you have all this energy coming from South Australia with, with no way, nowhere to go. Is, is that conclusion accepted at the moment? Well, that's, a, that's again, that's another thing that we have to discuss. Right. Because we, we don't see any value in Project Energy Connect if it's not connected to Sydney and Melbourne. No, well, I, I can agree with, I think m many of us would agree with that. I'm just not completely sure uh, that that is the actual conclusion that you can take all at the moment. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and, and basically you talk about VNI West, but to get it to Sydney depends on uh, Humelink, doesn't it, as much as VNI West? Well, so, so yes, yes it does. So, um, Humelink is awesome in its own uh, regard because you've got, the problem is you've now, you're shutting Araring at some point in 25, 26, wherever it is. Uh, Araring's north of Sydney. So one of the huge benefits that it has is it deconstrains the transmission going from south to north into Sydney. Mm. If, you, if you knock out Araring, you need another 3,000 megawatts coming from the south. Mm. That's impossible. Mm. That just can't happen. So you've, you've got... So never mind Snow 2.0, mm. never mind renewables, you, you're going to have system problems. Why can't you have the 3,000 megawatts coming from the north? Well, you can. So if, if you can get 3,000 megawatts of dispatchable capacity from the north of, of Sydney, you're, you're, you're creating a benefit not just for yourself, but for the entire NEM. Mm. So, for example, the Curry Power Station, which, mm. is, in, which is in Newcastle, yes. just happens to be north of... Well, it doesn't just happen. We plan it that way, obviously. Mm. It deconstrains the line which allows us to offer more product from, from the snow scheme because, you've got, because it deconstrains the, the physical link. 
I guess batteries can do a lot of deconstraining on the links too, can't they? I mean, one of the, uh, as I understand it, and you can tell me on uh, uh, this um, new Waratah battery that uh, Matt Keane invoked, uh, essentially that no one had ever heard of until the announcement, uh, that's meant to basically deconstrain transmission, isn't it, really, between, between Victoria and New South Wales? Yeah, so the, um, the, uh, the, it's a good idea in theory. The problem is you only get about 250 mega, megawatts more out of it. Because what it does is it allows the, or what it's intended to do, is to allow the uh, market operator to, to utilise all the lines. So they work on an N minus one reliability yes. basis. It allows them to go to N. Mm. So on average, you get another 250 megawatts out of it, which is better than nothing. Mm. But it's still only 250 megawatts. So so to to make it more, you you either need to to uh, you know obviously greatly upscale the battery or put more lines in place. Uh, or alternatively, other people could build batteries like Origin themselves are going to build uh, a battery of at least 400 megawatts and I expect more uh, firming uh, power will get built north of Sydney through the Arana and the New England renewable zones as well, won't it? Uh, I, I'll make a bet that, that, that there is some. There you go. I think I, so. So the reason I'm hesitating is because I think you're expecting me to say no, 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 because because everyone thinks we're anti-batteries for some reason, which we're not. The uh, well, the you have. You've made enough statements in the past <laughs> about how 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 to make to lead people. People don't think things for no reason, Gordon. Is what I will say. They don't just invent, come out, with, wake up in the morning thinking Snowy yeah. hates batteries. You know, well, they, they get that idea for a reason. No, I hope not. I hope they wouldn't be dreaming about that. So the <laughs> so what we have said is, from a pure energy storage perspective, Snow a battery is a sixty times the cost of Snow two point zero, which is just a fact. Hmm. So from from a storage of, of energy across seasons. Batteries to us don't really answer that question because they they don't store they're not designed to store. Energy they're not designed it. for seasonal storage. Right? No. I think everyone would agree with that. How, however, and this is why uh, I do say all the time, and so does Paul Broad, we're not anti-batteries. It's just horses for courses. So in South Australia, the Hornsdale battery provides a huge amount of frequency control. Hmm. So it stabilises the grid. It does everything they wanted to. You know, it's a you you. They're very happy they've got it. Put yes. it that way. Um, However, in terms of pure energy storage, again, quoting the MOQ4 report, they made batteries no, no, across no, no. the NEM. We can agree that all the batteries that are out there at the moment are not designed to do energy storage. They're designed right. to, pro they're designed to provide system Sold. services. That's not an argument. But if you look at the way uh, batteries are developing around the world, that changes. If you look in the United States, uh, there's a huge pipeline of four-hour batteries. If you look in the UK, there's about three gigawatts of batteries that just went into the T4 capacity auction that was just uh, and it results were announced this week. So uh, I think the general theory in National Renewable Energy Lab uh, put this down in a big document is that batteries start out doing these uh, system services that they're uniquely well suited for, and then they move into this daily storage. Now, if I could just uh, talk a little bit more about what IEMO is showing in this ISP. If you look for New South Wales and their step change, they have about 60% of the megawatts of storage uh, coming uh, through to 2035 and longer from behind the metre storage of one sort or another, whether it's controlled by, by generators or, or retailers or not, you know, and about 40% of it coming mostly from Snowy 2. Uh, and if you look at the actual energy that comes from that storage, the firming power that's provided, about 70 or 5% of it comes from utility storage, which is mostly 
uh, Snowy 2, and the other 25% from behind the metre. So I guess my question I'm asking is, broadly, do you think that's a, a sort of viable thing, or have they got that all wrong as well? Yeah, well, hang on. We're not saying they've got everything all wrong. Just the, the timing and the, <laughs> and the speed of the interconnection, which is... We need to spend a bit more on that. Can we come back to that? So the, in terms of distributed storage, I think the biggest distributed storage will be cars. So electric vehicles will sit there with their tanks full of electricity, and they'll be battery, uh, car to, to home... And, and that system is going to develop over time. Uh, whether EMO's assumptions on the degree of central control of distributed storage is right, I don't know. Because they do make the assumption that a huge amount of distributed storage is available and it's all coordinated. Mm. So it is all, it's basically optimised mm. for the grid rather than for what the householder and the owner of the battery might like. I notice Origin's already up to 200 megawatts of, uh, you know, they doubled, went from 100 to 200 in six months of their VPP. So it's, it's quite, a, it is getting a bit of a move on. But go on, you were going to say? Yeah. So, so the, um, I think what would be logical is if there are more large-scale batteries built uh, in, in very system-specific locations, because that, that way they, they have multiple revenue streams. Because mm. I think batteries will need more than just a storage revenue stream, just like Snow 2.0. It's got mm. four revenue streams. So if you have those, those, those batteries uh, and they're big and they have storage of, say, four to eight hours, that is, that is incredibly useful. Mm. Uh, the, the, the distributed bit, um, who knows? We don't, we don't have a crystal no, I ball agree. on... It's, hard. it's a call. It's just a call. That's right. So, so that quantity And in a sense, ambitious. it doesn't really matter whether it's distributed or owned by uh, a, a utility, does it? You know, it's four to eight hours. It's not, it's not, it's not 200 hours. Well, but it depends who controls it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, can... I agree with that. But if you're modelling and you make an assumption about its control, then it doesn't really matter, if you see what I mean. It's just a, it's just a, a, a unit of storage. <laughs> yeah, but so it does matter, though, because you've got... Whether, whether you can control it or not depends... You're getting many, many hundreds of megawatts at the time you need it most. Yes. And if they're so, if you're missing 600 megawatts from wind, mm. and you're missing 2,000 megawatts from distributed storage, and you're missing 600 from solar, suddenly you've got a problem. Now, Gordon, we've gone very technical, sort of in a way, for our for my general audience, which is. Um, uh, not bad, but it, it, I can't do it all the time in every podcast, if you know what I mean, else, else people's... Uh, but we've also covered a lot of general stuff now, but, uh, and, and we've also been going uh, for a good while here, so I think we're probably actually coming to the end. Uh, I just wanted to ask, you mentioned four types, four revenue streams from Snowy 2, I think I heard you mention. What are they? Yeah. Um, so I don't want to reveal what the, the no. actual four line items are, but they come from the fact that that, that, that plant has capacity, energy, and storage. Mm. So there's, there's things you can do that you, you chop that's them up. That's three. Into, no, 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 that's, <laughs> that is, that's capabilities. Even I know that. So those three capabilities, <laughs> they, they transform into four revenue streams, mm. and um, they are commercial in confidence because, yes. we, like with CNI, we intend to lead the market with some of those revenue streams, mm. uh, but they're based in those three capabilities. And the, so the 2,000 megawatts capacity is obviously huge, uh, 350 gigawatt hours of storage is enormous, mm. uh, but we're going to need every last drop of water out of out of that that we have, and the ability to um, buy and to effectively buy and sell energy very quickly is is also incredibly important. Now, I just wanted to talk about this uh, CNI and and the general business model going forward because. Um, 
you, you, as you mentioned, Snow is already uh, procured about a gigawatt of re renewable energy. And uh, what's the prospects for procuring more over the next few years? Yeah, so um, there's, there's our demand on one side, which is huge, because that, we, we just see that custom base is growing and growing. Uh, the supply is going to be constrained. Because the problem is the, the investors in wind and solar are saying, well, we, we're not going to invest in Tasmania because we don't want to take the interconnect risk. We can't in, invest in Western Victoria because the ISP says you don't get hooked up to transmission until 2031. So you've, you've, got, you've got a real hole in the, in the, in the supply path. But there's all, on the other hand, uh, at least out to 2030, there's all this stuff in, in New South Wales, you know, where there's been massive expressions of interest. Um, uh, are you likely to be procuring any of that yourself or, you know, uh, uh, helping people who want to do that with, with your own sort of PPAs? Or how are you thinking about all in the New South yeah. Wales map as it affects, uh, as it affects knowing? So, so we haven't seen the, 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 the detailed modelling behind how those uh, reses, the renewable energy zones, work. Uh, the problem is those people are going to have the same transmission problems mm. because... You've, you've got uh, marginal loss factors, so how much you constrain or deconstrain things, but they're I'll, already quite I'll, I'll bad. I'll bet they're going to go ahead and, and bid for these uh, um, uh, LTSs just the same. Whether, whether yeah. those, and they will just imagine that the problems will get solved by the time they have to start running. Yeah, so, so in the rhombus of regret in Western Victoria, that's exactly what happened down there, mm. and, and those people are once bitten, twice shot. Yeah, yeah. So, so the issue there is the equity and the debt that sits behind all those expressions of interest, and of course they're interested. You've got some of the biggest energy companies in the world saying, right, we've got 20 billion to spend in Australia, can you please let us build a wind farm and take our power and everyone's happy? And we say, well, we'd love to, but where are you going to build it? But Gordon, I, I get the transmission issue, but I'm just telling you that with Harare closing uh, and the New South mm. Wales Altessas out there, uh, uh, you'd have to be a nutter not to think that people are going to buy, you know, make commit to build. It's going to happen. Well, so that's where I'm going to take. Um, a, a, you I'm going to disagree with you because because the problem is no, no, they will, but they're not going to with our transmission. And you're you're kind of assuming transmission away. You're saying, oh, we agree all that on all that, so it doesn't matter. But but the 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 current plan is for Humlink not until 2026 to 28. Yes. VNIOS not until 2031. We, we need it today. Yeah. Those links would be heavily utilised were they there now. Well, I, I can agree with that probably, but I can also understand, Gordon, generally that, you know, people, uh, there's a lot of objections to running Humlink through a national park and the biodiversity cost, and I think that's a fair objection. I can see that transmission uh, uh, causes people to be grumpy, where, you know, there's a not-in-my-backyard kind of issue and transmission farmers aren't compensated for transmission that runs through their area properly. And I can see that uh, even if it was a war on, it still wouldn't get built in a day or two, you know. I mean, it's just not going to be yeah. there, those transmission links, that quickly, are they? Well, but, so you, but you raise a really key issue, which is if you're going to string a transmission line through someone's property, You've got to be fair income about how you're going to treat them. Yep. What if it was you? Would you yep. like a 500 kV tower in your backyard? Mm. So I think, or, or is it a national park? Are you going to treat the environment with respect? Mm. So I think that part has got to be properly worked through and they should be working on, on that path now and working out easements and the best possible route to minimise that, uh, you know, the, the objection from, from national parks and from landowners because that's valid. Mm. So these are problems, that, these are real problems that need to be resolved.
actually building the transmission lines should be a piece of cake. Yep. So it's a social licence issue from beginning to end, you know, really. It's all of us agreeing on what the objective is and finding a way to achieve it. Gordon, we've talked a lot. I've really enjoyed the conversation, but I think uh, that's probably uh, time to wind things up. Great. Thanks, David. Pleasure. And that was Gordon Weimer, Chief Commercial Officer with Snowy Hydro. David, what were your principal takeaways from this discussion? I mean, very, very candid discussion. Interesting to get Snowy Hydro's point of view. Um, they argue their position well. A lot of people wouldn't agree with everything that they say. But... Um, well, I, I think the main point he, he thinks is that um, more transmission is needed to uh, let the renewable energy go ahead. And I think in many respects, that is actually at the very end of the day, broadly correct. As we all know, the single biggest bugbear uh, of uh, wind and solar developers has been getting connected. That is, uh, and I have little doubt that we have to get the transmission backbone more or less right. That's what underlines renewable energy zones uh, uh, before we can build all the renewable energy that we really need. And as we know, with the closure of Araring, uh, we need that renewable energy now. The single biggest problem that faces every energy transition, whether we look in Europe or Australia uh, or anywhere else, is that you have to build the new supply before you close the old stuff. And you can't build the new supply and make it work unless it's connected. Or as um, Angus Taylor uh, would, would no doubt say, when too much solar is never enough. Um, so I, I haven't heard that. him say that, Charles. <laughs> well, I have heard him say there's too much wind and solar, but I've also heard him say <laughs> that there's not enough wind and solar to replace coal generation. So I'm just sort of putting the two together for him. But um, yeah, um, David, we're probably challenged for time. I think I'd like to get on to some of the other things because there's been a few other things happening this past week since we last talked. I think principally the, the biggest one is the increased offer from Cannon Brooks and Brookfield, um, the Brooks brothers for AGL. That was rejected out of hand by the AGL board and now Brookfield and Cannon Brooks have, well, they say they've walked away, but they actually do say that they've downed pens. Um, David, what are they waiting for? Are they hoping that the meeting that will be, the shareholders meeting that will be called to discuss this sort of controversial demerger will end up sort of throwing it back in the face of the board and then they can come back in? Yeah, well, there will be a vote. I'm not sure what else exactly they're waiting for. Uh, I don't uh, have any knowledge at all about it. I would say that uh, before the vote, there will be most likely uh, a report recommending independent experts report or similar that uh, goes through the pros and cons and why the demerger is expected to be a good idea. If you look at the AGL numbers, what you'll find right now is Axel, that's the coal gen, some people call it Shitco, but let's call it Axel, <laughs> uh, uh, will have about $1 billion of EBITDA in FY22 uh, on a pro forma basis. And the energy Australia, uh, the new AGL, uh, um, AGL Australia it's called, uh, will have about $350 million of EBITDA on a, on a, so the risk is that when you do, do the demerger, the uh, energy AGL Australia bit, bit gets increases in value, perhaps quite a lot, but it's only earning 350 million of EBITDA. So it has to go up an awful lot to compensate for the fact that the bit that's earning a billion dollars of EBITDA, the coal gen is likely to be, have its valuation reduced. 
Uh, there's a lot more to be said about it. You could think about the value of repurposing those sites, your lawn and uh, and Bayswater. I mean, what are you going to repurpose them for? You're not going to build a wind and solar farm there. Uh, you're not going to probably... Lo Loyang and Bayswater, by the way, yes. Loyang Lo and Bayswater, excuse me. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to be... Well, I mean, they've been talking about these energy hubs and they're talking about it doing it at Torrens as well. So it's not necessarily wind and solar. It might be a little bit of solar on site, but essentially they're talking about possibly hydrogen electrolyzers. They're talking about industrial hubs, clean energy, batteries, things like that. So, yeah, but I mean, um, you can connect a battery somewhere. I mean, you, the, the, this coal generation business has got a $1.4 billion uh, closure liability at its net present value. Uh, Bayswater is going to see its cheap coal run out in about three years' time, maybe a bit less, and then then its uh, costs will go up quite significantly in New South Wales. I mean, it's quite a... And most important thing of all, as we said on the podcast with Mike Cannabrus, it's risky, right? If uh, Tomago decides to buy renewable energy instead of buying coal energy, that's that's a lot of volume lost. Uh, and what's the point of doing the demerger of uh, AGL Australia unless it's going to stop buying coal-fired generation? I mean, that's the yeah. only reason really for doing it. So anyway, mm -hmm. let's not talk about that because there's so many other exciting things that have happened. And I think the one that a lot of people will think is more interesting than the AGL business is Victoria's announcement that it's going to facilitate to start with two gigawatts of offshore wind. Uh, and they four gigawatts is pretty much locked in. And they hope to have nine gigawatts in a very far distant 2040. That, that's quite a big deal, don't you think? Well, it's huge. I mean, well, I mean, it is the first Australian state to actually set an offshore wind target. Um, I do question, though, um, David, where are we going with costs for offshore wind? I mean, we keep on told, yes, it will come down, it will come down, but it, has, it isn't there yet. So, are we sort of that? Are we are we confident enough that the that the um, the cost per megawatt hour of offshore wind will be low enough to? to allow this um, allow this to happen? Well, it's going to happen because the Victorian government wants it to. Uh, and I think, you know, in the end, Victoria's been a bit parochial about it. If you look at the ISP, Victoria gets uh, reduced as a, as, a, as a player in the energy market because it doesn't have the land area, frankly, to do mm. all the wind and solar. Uh, so offshore wind is a way for Victoria to stay as relevant as it is today in this particular space. And now the capacity factors are much higher, up around 50%. Uh, mm -hmm. They've also point out that offshore wind off Victoria is negatively correlated with onshore wind, and that's a good thing. So it means that when the onshore wind stops blowing, offshore is blowing and vice versa, so that the overall wind portfolio is, becomes more predictable by combining those two things. And also the offshore wind is uh, available generally at the time of peak demand in the evening, which is another big plus. And it requires different transmission, but can probably take advantage of some of the spare transmission that we're going to have in Victoria once the uh, uh, coal generation stations close. So all of that's wonderful. The only trouble is it costs pretty much double what onshore wind costs at the moment. So uh, at the point of production, uh, uh, so, 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 how all that works out, we'll have to see. But that's the reason the uh, ISP it wasn't selected offshore wind in the ISP because it, it looks expensive. If it's cost ninety dollars a megawatt hour, I don't say that's the right number, but I think it won't be too far off for the first couple. Uh, then you know you're not going to be running an aluminium smelter on that when you've still got to firm it up, aren't you? No, well, that's exactly right. Yes, yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see what sort of mechanisms they bring in place to have that done. And of course, you know, once there's a few being built, then uh, presumably the, the the prices will come down. Um, 
Don't so, Giles, you have... Giles, let, let me ask you the other thing. You know, who's the person you can most rely on to really cause angst and anguish and to sand in the gears and the person who the silent killer of renewable energy in Australia uh, and the silent killer of decarbonisation? Who, who is that person that first comes to mind if you, when I say that to describe that to you? <laughs> the Federal Energy Minister. <laughs> Yeah, Mr. A. Taylor. Yes, Mr. A. Taylor. <laughs> Angus. Call me well, Angus. What's he, well done, Angus. What's he done now? Well, uh, I, he's changed the rules uh, in the carbon market, hasn't he, Giles? Perhaps you can well, explain yes, yes. it better than me. Well, actually, I think our reporter, Michael Mazengar, would be able to explain it even better than that because I've been sort of um, uh, internetly challenged. But look, my understanding is that they actually changed the rules. The people who were allocated or who won auctions in the um, Emissions Reduction Fund no longer have to sell it to the government at the price that they contracted. They can now sell it on the open market. Um, this has two things. One, it just seems to be a big change of the rules halfway through. Um, it seems like it's going to deliver windfall gains to certain people, some of the people who have sort of aggregated all these things together, um, the KKR-operated um, um, company, whose name I can't quite remember, and some farmers. But it also causes a collapse of the unofficial sort of voluntary market. market, the voluntary market, which interestingly enough um, was seen as one of the ways to encourage investments in some of the government's pet technologies, such as carbon capture and other things, but also was seen by some people sort of strategizing and thinking, well, what comes after the renewable energy certificates? Well, maybe that's the um, Australian carbon credit units. So a lot of people have to be redoing their sums. Um, there's going to be a lot of implications for different large-scale investments. Um, it's a massive change to the rules halfway through. More importantly, I, I just think I understand think it was allowed for in the original rules that this could happen, but I guess it's very obvious when uh, the reports are that the uh, price of uh, ACUs has fallen by 25% in one day. Uh, I mean, that uh, yeah. uh, shows that, you, you know, People who invest on, and you don't, if the rules get changed or adjusted, I mean, you can lose a lot of money and that puts yeah. the cost of capital up. Well, that's right. Well, look, to me, it just sort of emphasises a couple of things. One is just like yet another example of a complete failure of federal government policy since this government was elected in 2013. I mean, it's just like, you know, the it's a long reduction list. It's a long list. We'd have, we, need it's two long list. we need two podcasts to go through. No, no, no. But I, I'm, I'm sure I can do it in 30 seconds, David. Um, basically, I mean, this was described even by a man from Turnbull as a fig leaf for action on climate change and it has been exposed as such. They got rid of the carbon price, which is a perfectly respectable um, mechanism, the official carbon price. They completely underestimated, and this shows now, the actual demand and the desire from the corporate community in particular, but also many, many people to actually have some sort of carbon price. So the, these people basically got together, created an unofficial market, a voluntary market, huge demand for it. That pushed the prices up. And basically, the government have just basically admitted that they've got the whole thing. They've stuffed the whole thing up completely. They've got the whole thing wrong. And to short where they go through here should they get re-elected in May, which I rather hope they don't. Well, that's right. Plus, we could add the more fundamental policy failures like no EV policy as, and no carbon price policy, no, no strategy at all. Uh, there's all that. And look, we're getting to the end, uh, Giles, but I can't let it go as an energy analyst without drawing attention, our listeners' attention to the price of thermal coal. Uh, it costs, you know, broadly 75 US dollars to 100 US dollars is the price you require for coal, uh, thermal coal to de develop a new coal mine. 
<laughs> right now, the quotes are at for, for to sell coal are at US four hundred and thirty five dollars. Uh, I saw just recently. Now, that's the most absurd price. If uh, if if any, no wonder Raring was closing. They couldn't last for two days buying coal at that price. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Look, there's one other thing that we need to talk about, and just sort of acknowledge the appointment of Anthea Harris um, as the new chief executive of the Energy Security Board. This is an interesting appointment. One, they haven't had a chief executive before. They had a chairman, Kerry, chairwoman, Kerry Schott, and various sort of members, sort of commissioners or board members or whatever. So the role of chief executive is interesting. Yet to get any real insight into what that means. I'm sure we'll try and get Anthea Harris on sometime soon to um, talk about what she hopes to achieve and what she hopes to do. But she's a very experienced um, player in the market, both within the government departments um, and also with the Climate Change Authority. So, um, yeah. so Giles, and, and I think the immediate task uh, that we're all going to be interested in, or the policy, is, is around this capacity mechanism. That's really the thing the ESB is most involved in at the moment and, and, and what actually comes out with that. And Re-emphasising the point I'm happy to make a thousand times, any capacity mechanism shouldn't be designed to keep old coal in. It should be designed to get new, modern, flexible, low-carbon, dispatchable capacity into the system. And uh, we've mentioned Anthea uh, 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 Harris, but we should also mention Merrin York, I think, uh, coming in to take charge, overall charge of the ISP. Uh, uh, replacing yes. Alex Onehouse. Uh, uh, now, you know, the ISP is an important document uh, acknowledged even beyond the electricity industry as something that you have to focus on. Uh, so, uh, you know, I hope it keeps going as well as it has. I'm sure it will. But I uh, I think uh, the, the team that developed the ISP this time round, whilst it can always be criticised, it's a fantastic document with the amount of work and uh, knowledge that's it's put out there. Well, I agree with that, and um, looks sounds like we're going to have to send some uh, invitations out for um, for our upcoming podcast. But um, we've actually got a fantastic lineup coming up in the next couple of weeks. We won't say who, but um, there's some great interviews we've already got locked in, so we're going to be quite busy doing that. Um, David, I do want to point out the South Australia state election coming up. I believe it's this coming Saturday. That's going to be really quite interesting between the coalition government, the Liberal government, um, and the Labor government, and apparently it's quite sort of close and neck and neck and even though you'd think they'd be largely on the same page as regards energy policy there are some sort of key differences one with their approach to the transmission link but i think that's a done deal now to new south wales but uh, also their approach to the green hydrogen but maybe that's something that we can discuss once we get a result from there and i'd also like to point out the um, interview we did with chris bowen um on the driven podcast because he just got himself a tesla as part of his parliamentary car allocation so I had a chat with Chris Bowen last week. Um, again, a delayed podcast because of our internet problems, but basically Chris was talking about his Tesla, the EV policy from Labor, how that's going to help him sort of move that policy forward. And he also had a few things to say about the sort of the energy transition, the RR enclosure and the Loyang, the AGL bid. So have a listen to that one. David, any final thoughts? Uh, just to say thanks to our sponsors. Uh, I saw a few uh, panels going underwater up there uh, in Lismore, so no doubt uh, there'll be a market for more. <laughs> That's not the most cheerful response I've ever had at the end. Thank you very much to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. Um, thanks also to everyone out there listening, and uh, we'll be back very soon with another episode of Energy Insiders. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, 
the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.